Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wahead, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Conrad Ford, welcome to Searching for Mana. Hello, good to be here. Absolute pleasure. Uh, fuller introduction, Conrad Ford um, has been the founder and CEO uh, with funding options. Um, he has um, recently um, been consulting with Starling Bank uh, in an interim position. And we also have an announcement um, to make on the show in terms of what Conrad uh, is going to be doing moving forward. So um, what would be really useful for the audience Conrad is perhaps if you could uh, introduce yourself and what you're up to right now of course yeah um so so yeah as you mentioned I'm the founder or the original founder of a business called funding options which is um it's actually Europe's leading online marketplace for business lending so it's often uh, mistaken for peer-to-peer lender. It's not a peer-to-peer lender. In fact, it's not a lender at all. Uh, it's a, um, a next-generation broker or intermediary in the market. So I founded that business um, uh, well, well over five years ago. Um, uh, I was the sole founder, uh, but I stepped down as CEO in September. Um, I decided to take a few months off to, uh, frankly, just recover my sanity because uh, it really is tough. I'm uh, um, uh, founding a startup uh, and probably tougher to scale one as well, actually. Um, so I took a few months off recovering my sanity. Um, uh, and then um, actually, fatefully, I dropped an email to Anne Bowden at Starling Bank um, uh, over Christmas um, saying I was really excited about their potential in SME banking, sorry, SME lending. Um, uh, so I took a, an advisory stroke interim executive role at Starling Bank for a few months, um, uh, which I really enjoyed. We can talk about that in, in more detail, but an amazing company to, to spend time at. Uh, and and I happened, my time there happened to coincide with the impact of COVID. Um, so the, uh, the, the kind of role I went in to do was very different to the role I ended up doing, um, uh, which is, uh, I guess, the nature of things in startup land. Um, but at the moment, uh, I'm actually enjoying a bit of time off, enjoying the weather. Um, but I've taken on a couple of advisory roles. I've been doing quite a lot over the last few months. I've been helping out quite a lot, uh, quite a few fintech startups, uh, just doing sort of informal mentoring uh, and, you know, sort of trying to get them through over whatever roadblocks they're running into. Uh, but one business I've been close to for a while, I've actually taken a formal role, uh, which has been announced just this morning. Uh, so I'm actually joining the advisory board of Trade Ledger. Uh, so Trade Ledger is a super exciting company. Um, for those that don't know it, um, uh, it's at the sort of deep tech uh, end of fintech, which is one of the reasons why um, they've actually done some amazing stuff, got some amazing milestones, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but um, uh, they, might, they, they don't quite have the profile that um, some, frankly, less deserving startups have uh, in the fintech world. But essentially, what, uh, what Trade Ledger do is build lending technology, particularly focused on mid-market and, and larger SME businesses. 
Um, uh, and that's a very underserved area of the market and the kind of technology solutions that are driving lending to that area of the market are very, very poor. Um, they're not intelligent at all, actually. Um, uh, and um, what Trade Ledger is doing is building very deep technology that actually uses um, what they call a system of intelligence. So in other words, actually brings to the surface intelligence around the lots of cash flow and transactional data that's available about these businesses to drive better lending. Um, uh, they've got um, some amazing investors and some amazing clients as well. Uh, this can be a very exciting year for them. Thanks for that, comrade. Well, um, on um, Trade Ledger, what stage are they at in terms of um, investment? Uh, well, um, they will be. Uh, they, they're, they're actually well funded. I'll say that. Um, I don't think they've actually formally announced uh, any funding at the moment. So um, uh, watch this space. Um, but uh, um, they are well funded. Let's just say, and, and attracting some very exciting investor atten uh, attention. Uh, so I don't want to steal their thunder. Um, just because I don't think it's in the public domain. Uh, but um, uh, you expect to be hearing a lot about Trade Ledger over the coming year. I'll say that. Um, uh, there's a reason I wanted to join their advisory board. Yeah, of course, and I want to I want to dig into that because, of course, you've got a bunch of options you can pursue. So this is obviously um, piqued your interest. Um, what type of side are they? How many people are in the business at the moment? I think they've probably got about twenty people. Um, they operate globally. Um, uh, it's not the kind of business that needs tons and tons of people. Uh, but actually, in today's announcement, that they'll be hiring an additional twenty people this year. So uh, there you go. You can get salivating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's um, because they're building, you know, um, core technology. Uh, in other words, it's not their role uh, in their current business model. It's not their role to go out and find millions of customers. Um, uh, their job is to work with institutions that have millions of customers. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the kind of, you know, the kind of institutions that are looking to work with them are, are really quite staggering. Precisely because this is a really big problem and nobody's really solved it yet. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a the, the way to think about this is. The kind of technologies we've got excited about over the you know the last couple of decades are really commoditized these days. So you know technologies that were transformational for um, uh, for businesses over the last couple of decades, whether it's CRM or ERP platforms, you know whether it's Zero for smaller businesses or SAP for bigger businesses. All these platforms do fundamentally is just um, capture data. They're systems of record. And in that respect, that's a fairly commoditized capability. Um, I'm not putting these platforms down. They're amazing platforms. But the reality is capturing data in a database, however intelligently you do it, uh, is these days as a commodity. But platforms that can actually bring intelligence, an intelligence layer, an insight layer onto that data, that's really where the market is going. Uh, and it's only that kind of level of technology, particularly combined with machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's only that kind of level of technology that's going to break some of the big technical problems or big industry problems uh, that we still have left to crack. Uh, and actually lending to mid-market or smaller uh, or SME businesses is one of those problems where, you know, it feels like we've, we've only just chipped away at the problem over the last decade. Nobody's really, really, really moved the needle. Uh, and I'm really excited about businesses that can do that. Do you think there's, um, if you look globally, other companies that um, Trade Ledger are tracking? Or, or is this a, a unique um, proposition and they've thought about it? Um, in their own way, and therefore you guys have got a head start. I think I think definitely the latter, um, to the extent that the the sector that they're doing particularly well and is 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 quite underserved. 
there's been there's been a lot of focus, uh, as you well know, there's been a lot of focus on um, lending to small businesses uh, and what can be technically done there. There's been a lot of focus on that over the last five years or so. Uh, you know, there's been super propositions coming along where they're lending based on accounting data, for example, you know, streaming data out of your zero accounting data, more recently open banking data. Um, uh, and, and, and other intelligent data sources. So there's been lots of innovation there, albeit it feels like you know we're kind of at st- still towards the start of that journey rather than the end of the journey. But for mid-market businesses, you know, businesses that are substantially bigger than the kind of you know your mum and pop shop on the high street, yeah. there's actually been not that much innovation. Yeah. Um, so, so we we started um, with episode one of searching for Mana, talking to um, Valentina at Open North. Um, so they're, of course, focused on the middle um, company, companies. They gave examples of having finance, for instance, being um, like Leon, um, you know, where there's um, dozens of chains. Um, so that market uh, is what these guys are focused on, those type of, those type of companies. Um, and what you're saying they do Technology-wise, uh, I think you mentioned AI, machine learning, different to um, Oak North, for instance, is they're just specifically building the technical layer that would enable any lender, per se, to be able to evaluate who to lend to in that, that mid-market. That's correct, yeah. And of course, you know, Oak, Oak North have come from a distinctly different direction, which is, you know, they are a bank uh, here yeah. in the UK, a branded bank. Uh, and I believe, I believe um, uh, that it's actually their policy. They won't sell their technology to another bank in the UK precisely because they see themselves having a genuine proprietary advantage uh, in terms of their technology uh, capabilities. Uh, but as I think you're alluding to, Oak North are, are beginning to sell their technology outside of the UK, outside of the home market where they're not a bank, uh, beginning to se- uh, sell that technology um, uh, and, and quite successfully as far as I can tell. We you know, don't underestimate just how big this market is. It's enormous and, yeah. and it's... You know, it, it's quite rare to find a market that big that's underserved. Um, yeah. You know, you know, we could have, you would have thought that over time we would have kind of cracked some a problem that big. It's quite rare to find a problem uh, like that. One of the, you know, going back to my history and, and funding options, right? You know, one of the things I used to say when I talked about funding options was, uh, and, and why why I was excited about the business. And we're now talking about, you know, funding options was serving small businesses, right? But what I used to say, and this still remains true, you know, name me one other industry or sector in the world where there is an oligopoly and the oligopolists don't want their oligopoly. And that uh, is small business banking. Um, in the UK, uh, it's also true in Australia, and it's, it's true in um, Canada, multiple markets where you have four or five banks that absolutely dominate small business banking. And they don't really want that monopoly, sorry, oligopoly, because um, the reality is they don't want to lend to all of their customers. Um, not all of their customers meet their, their sort of vanilla or simple criteria that they look to lend to. And so it's actually quite rare to get a situation where you have dominant players who actually don't want the dominance they have. And that's one of the reasons why I found small business lending such an attractive and fertile market to go into, because it was a market which, largely speaking, was actually welcoming of challenges. Uh, and of course, you know, your traditional model basically says you go up against a monopoly, uh, an oligopoly, they're going to kill you. Yeah. Um, you know, a classic example is that there's an oligopoly that owns flights between New York and Heathrow. Uh, and every now and then a new entrant comes along and tries to crack the oligopoly. Before they know it, the prices across the market just plummet and the, and the, and the, and the challenger goes under. 
uh, famously a company called Laker Air Airlines did that and sued um, uh, the likes of British Airways. So generally speaking, when you go up against an oligopoly, it doesn't end well. But um, this is a rare situation where the oligopolists don't necessarily want the power they have in the market. And um, Comrade, you were um, prior to founding funding options um, in, a, in a very senior role um, with, with, uh, with Barclays, um, I think COO of um, some type of practice. We can go into that in more detail, but actually the question now is, were you, as someone in the bank, made aware of the business, one of the five, not particularly wanting that SME market? And was that part of the thinking as to why then go set up um, a channel that allowed companies of smaller size who did want to break that market? Is that where it was spawned? Yeah, well, I mean, that certainly um, uh, was, was a factor in my experience in banking. Of course, that was a factor. Uh, and, and, and I was COO, but I was COO of quite a small bit of Barclays. So let's call it big fish in a small pond, let's say. <laughs> um, but, but, but essentially, um, yeah, so obviously, and it was, it was clear to me that banks find it really challenging to help all of their small business customers. Uh, and actually, when you step back from it, it's quite easy to actually understand why. So there are 30 million households in the UK. Uh, and although we like to sort of value our differences, the reality is we're all pretty similar. Uh, so in other words, you can come up with a fairly sim sing singular homogenous proposition that is relevant and valuable to 30 million households. There are only 5 million small businesses and they're all completely different. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, honestly, the needs of a, um, let's call it a freelancer, uh, you know, Shoreditch hipster freelancer designer, all the way through to a construction firm, to a hairdresser, you know, um, sole practice hairdresser, all the way through to a haulage firm. These are completely different businesses. You know, some of them invoice to get paid, some of them get paid directly through card terminals. They have lots of different characteristics. Um, uh, and from a financing perspective, they are completely different. Yep. You know, a, a hairdresser might every three years, they might spend 10 grand on refurbishing their studio. If you're a haulage company, you probably raise 100, 200,000 pounds of finance every year to buy a new truck. So, so, so guess what? You know, the, the banks really struggle with the fact that they are not homogenous and there's not that many of them. So, uh, and the banks, you know, for cost reasons, they try and give them a one-size-fits-all proposition, when in reality, one size does not fit all. Uh, and I think one of the really healthy things that's happened over the last decade or two is the banks have kind of become more self-aware about that fact. So, you know, I, I used the term oligopoly before. That was not a criticism of the banks. The reality is, um, the key point is they are actually aware that they're not perfect for serving every single small business. Um, and one of the things that was actually exciting me in my time at Family Options was that banks were really beginning to really begin to cotton on to a proposition we used to call alternative yes. And what that means is if you're a bank and one of your small business customers comes to you and asks for a loan and you don't want to lend to them, rather than say no, why don't you give them an alternative yes? In other words, why don't you offer them a yes from an alternative lender who does want to lend to them? And it's not necessarily because there's anything wrong with the business. It's just because they don't fit the particular criteria of that given bank. So, so banks are becoming increasingly receptive. And that was certainly, you know, that was part of my thinking uh, as, as I left and, and, and left Barclays, left banking and began to set up a business. But I'd say probably, you know, the biggest drivers for me starting that journey were really two things. Firstly, you know, Funny Options was a child of its time. When I started funding options, let's say around 2013, that was the absolute peak of the impact of the global financial crisis. 
on the real economy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, Lehman Brothers going under didn't, didn't really affect the average person or the average small business. Um, but, you know, lending to SMEs had pretty much dried up um, by about 2012 by, from some of the banks, certainly. So to some extent, it was kind of like, you know, there's a big market opportunity. There's a big market need. Uh, and I had a strategy background, so I was doing my market sizing. Uh, and the other one, um, uh, only half jokingly, was a bit of a midlife crisis, right? Because I was in my very late 30s. I think I was about to become 40. Uh, and actually, I was just increasingly thinking, am I going to be happy with myself lying on my deathbed, you know, um, having spent the entire time in large corporates, right? You know, that's, I'm pretty sure that's not what I set out to do. So to some extent, it was a bit of a midlife crisis. Uh, and I only say that half jokingly. <laughs> um, I'm coming towards... Uh... 40 in a few years and uh i mean i think this happens at all major milestones dependent on um you know where you're at but you do start thinking okay you know i've probably got a few big plays here you know maybe maybe only two if they're going to really come off um and so what seems to be happening right now is a lot of my friends and peer groups are coming to me for advice where they've you know got to md level of you know, said bank or wherever it is, and they're trying to work out if they go for it right now. And um, I was listening to uh, a talk um, the other day where it was trying to think this through so that, because of course, you know, uh, I don't want to give the wrong advice here. Uh, it's very it's, it's very easy to uh, to say, yeah, sure, and go for it, follow your passion. You've You've got to, You've got to work out if what the person's thinking of doing is, you know, uh, a calling almost. Uh, you know, is, is there something that's kind of burning so deep that they appreciate that this is going to set in motion a decade of having to constantly uh, be stubborn, uh, stick true to the vision, um, not necessarily pivot, but certainly refine efforts as you go along. Uh, and it's and it's incredibly challenging. And so, yeah, you need to really, really uh, want to go on that journey more actually almost than the um, upside that comes with success. So when you were thinking that through, uh, Comrade, you had a really good education, edu educated at Cambridge, uh, worked at UBS, then went to Barclays, involved in strategy, had done well. Um, when you were thinking that through, you know, kind of midlife crisis aside, the, the thing that you did there was you projected into the future and reflected if you would be happy if you didn't make the decision. And that's a really good way for someone to think through if they should do that leap or not. I always say, um, and this is definitely stolen from somebody, um, you know, you've got to think if you're 80 and you look back on your career and your journey, then will you be happy with how you set out your priorities? That includes family life, um, goals that are outside of work, and then, of course, work. And if you can answer that, then you know what to do. So you did that and thought, right, I'm going to go for this. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to now. Has that been the best thing you, you did? Are you, you you're super happy and grateful that you did that? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, you know, certainly... Um, uh, that I left the company that was, um, uh, you know, a successful company. Um, you know, and I can tell you, you know, there was a number of times along, along the way, you know, not just once when we came really, really close to it being an utter failure, right? You know, the, um, 
it's uh, you know, when, when you're running a startup, you know, of course, your job is to project this air of success and calm, you know, the, the, the sort of fake it till you make it culture of Silicon Valley. But, you know, the reality is, you know, I, I can now sort of, you know, reflect on and, 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 you know, in the early days, we came within days of going under, you know, not, not weeks, not months, days of going under more than once. Um, and, you know, because of it, you know, fundraising, um, uh, came under threat, got delayed, whatever it may be. In one case, you know, we had, uh, we had, we had Christmas getting in the way of a fundraise. Um, so, you know, the, the reality is I was, you know, I am humble enough to understand that we were lucky to get through a couple of times. Yeah. You know, fundamentally the vision of what Fundy Options set out to do was a very good vision. Yeah. Uh, and actually even in the darkest days, when it looked like things were going to go completely off the rails, I was always thinking that it was a failure of execution, not a failure of strategy. So, in other words, the business was the right. Was a good, there was a business, good business, waiting to get out. Yeah, uh, and the failure was mine in terms of execution. If we if we weren't succeeding, uh, and I would stand by that prognosis. By the way, you know that's not false modesty. That you know, the reality is, in the end, we got execution right. Yeah, uh, it just took some time. So. So, you know, um, firstly, yes, I'm super happy myself on the journey. Um, but if things had gone wrong, those two, three, whatever it is times, I'd probably give you a completely different, you know, uh, a completely different story. You know, I've, um, you know, whether or not I end up making some money out of funding options remains to be seen. I remain a shareholder. I know it's in the public domain. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, what has been really, really nice on the other side is, um, that I've had a lot of people reaching out to me for either mentoring at the early stage um, uh, in a very nice, respectful way, um, uh, and you know, ho you know, like hopefully I've been helpful to them. But also, I've had some really interesting offers uh, uh, around roles to take on, consulting roles, advisory roles. So, what has been fantastic for me is kind of realizing that at the other end that I've kind of added added to my. Uh, added, added to my LinkedIn, let's call it, in, in a nice way. There's lots of interesting things I can do now. And I'm super excited about that. Uh, and one of those, of course, might be to start another business where, you know, next time round, not only should it be dramatically easier to raise some money, but actually I probably, one would hope, it would be 10 times better at starting a business. Uh, because, you know, you look back at some of the mistakes you make in the early days, and I'm sure it's true for you as well, and you just wince and think, what on earth was I thinking? You know, with that set of facts, how on earth did I decide the right thing to do was this, right? So, um, you know, I think if I did it again, uh, I would be a dramatically better founder. Uh, and, and perhaps, you know, perhaps that's what I might do at some point. Yeah. So um, to get to talking about that and thinking it through, which I like to do, um, let's go, let's go into a little bit more detail about funding options journey. Um, and just before doing that, I'll absolutely agree and empathize with you that um, I wince at a lot of the things that I've done with uh, my own startup and continue to do. Uh, it's uh it's constant um, challenge, but um, you know, as you say, I think when you come to found again, then what you're actually giving yourself the ability to do is almost fast track the early years because you've already learned so much. You've built some type of template for um, for the systems that you need to put into the business, and also perhaps you've seen um, what some of the most important things were that you might have chosen not to do. So I want to work out. What you feel like funding options were the things that you developed as skills. So not just the, the guys who kind of reached out to you and um, asked for you to kindly mentor them, but the audience has the chance to 
to learn from some of the successes or some of the things that when or if you do set your next business up, um, of course, you'll be thinking to put into practice straight away. So let's break it down. One of the big categories is founding partners. So with funding options, you founded the business as the, um, as the sole founder. Um, if you look back, do you think that you would choose to have one or two co-founders? Uh, yes, I would, I would probably, you know, doing it again, I'd probably have a bias with a strong caveat, very strong caveat, that only if I had, you know, 99% confidence in those co-founders because, you know, the, the upside of co-founders is that you share the burden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, I, if I'd been ill for a month, right, in, in, in the first few years of funding options, that probably would have been it, right? Um, uh, you know, you get to a certain point where the business can, can live on without you. Um, uh, but in the early days, if you're a sole founder, you know, you're constantly at threat of it's something as simple as bad flu, right? Um, so, um, but the, you know, the, the downside to co-founders is that it is very common um, for subtle differences in terms of your motivations, in terms of your work ethic, ambitions, it's quite common for the little subtle differences that aren't really teased out at the start to become really big gaping holes in the relationship quite quickly. So if, for example, a very common scenario, you've got one founder who's kind of, you know, full Silicon Valley mode, working 24-7, going to kill themselves building their startup, uh, and the other one's kind of like, well, you know, I've left the nine till five behind. I better be nine till six now, you know? <laughs> um, uh, and actually, you know, if you've set out and start saying, you know, let's make this fair, let's be 50-50 partners, uh, you know, but one of you is there at midnight every night, basically sitting there fuming about the fact that partner went home um, four hours ago, you know, these things can really, really explode. It's like the little things in a marriage, <laughs> you know, uh, over time they can become big things. So, you know, you need to be really, really confident in the foundations of that co-foundership. Um, but with that caveat, um, uh, you know, there's certain people I've worked with in the past I would love to co-found a business with because I know that we'd be complementary, super important uh, to find people that make up for your weaknesses. Um, so we'd be complementary, uh, and I know that we'd probably have about the same level of commitment, most importantly, that we'd be fair to each other. So if you find the right people, absolutely share the load. If you don't find the right people, then actually you're, better, you know, you're desperate to start get going uh, and then attract the people and you will always be kind of the senior partner. So I, I was, I was super lucky, lucky in that I had a COO who joined very shortly after I started the business, but initially as a, as a, uh, a day rate consultant working a day or so a week, as she put it, when I described the business to her at the start, she said it was the most boring thing she'd ever heard. Um, uh, but um, uh, slowly but surely, she got more and more into the business, and I got I, I got my claws into her and brought her in full time. But so I did have somebody alongside me from the early days who I could actually be honest with, and that's the critical point, right? You know, you can't tell your team the complete unvarnished truth about the start, start the, you know the state of an early stage business. Um, you just can't. It's not it's not how things are done. But you do need to have one or two people that you can be completely open with. And actually, you know, when I've had people in my networks are reaching out for help, <laughs> I'm just going to say to them, look, I'm a qualified accountant, right? You know, it's like talking to a doctor. Anything you tell me is in confidence, yeah? 
I don't believe what you're telling me. <laughs> you know, you know, this, these things wouldn't be true um, if everything you told me is true. So just, you know, tell me what's really going on, right? You know, so you need to have that person you can just be completely open with. It's kind of like, okay, let me tell you what well, the sky's fallen in, the world's, you know, the, 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 everything's gone horribly wrong. What on earth can I do? You know, these are the situations you face as a startup founder. And, it, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but it will take three times as long as you thought, and it will cost three times as much. Uh, and actually to share the burden of, of what it takes to get through that uh, those early stages, especially on your first business, um, uh, I think is super important. Yeah, I think um, you have to think um, like you do. So almost stage one might be before even considering what market opportunity to address. Are there some obvious people that, um, you know, I trust and from experience, uh, would seriously consider co-founding with. And if that's the case, and they're at the same midlife crisis phase as you, <laughs> then, then, then start those conversations and, and, you know, kind of whiteboard together. Um, if not, and uh, this then depends what type of business you're looking to scale, because, and it also actually depends what, what level of experience you bring. If you look at people in their 20s who just out of university um, want to be entrepreneurial and go raise money. You typically need co-founders. There's a formula that the VCs are looking for, right? You're going to need a CTO. You need a product guy. You're going to need the business guy. But then if you get to somebody who's been in a, 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 a business for 10, 15, 20 years, then often these characters like you um, or, or myself in this instance can go found, found that business them, themselves. But what you need to make sure you do incredibly quickly is go find the several people to put around a table with you who you can implicitly trust. And I think how you do that is you've got to have the leverage of opportunity. So if you're sat there on day one with them all saying, look, I've got more experience, so this is my business, um, your employees, you know, but there's brilliant incentives for everybody. It doesn't particularly work. Whereas if you've got the leverage where you're bringing to the table what's going to make that opportunity work, which could be network, it could be clients, it could be a, a database of opportunity, it could be the technology, the expertise, potentially having founded before so people buy into the ability for you to go raise, quite frankly, with the right people. Then, then that's when I think you can see founders on their own sometimes, actually. I think statistically, be more successful than co-founding. And the reason is, as you say, it's so easy to fall out with other founders. So one reason is, um, you know, the uh, perception that perhaps someone's putting more sweat equity in and you, you share equity. But that there's a million other things. It could be, where are your risk dials? So somebody might want to push the business more aggressively and the other doesn't. I see that frustrating people an awful lot of the time. Um, and then another can be, um, you know, what type of culture do you want to have in your team? And um, that's the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So you, um, you know, uh, CEO of funding options for several years. Can you talk us through that journey of that all important interim COO who you brought in? So that was a very important person you could soundboard off be honest with it wasn't a positive echo chamber and then what did you do with the rest of the team yeah so in, in the early days we didn't really have any you know 
I didn't really have any understanding of sort of tools and techniques that were there to sort of, you know, build up team culture. You know, towards the end, I kind of got schooled um, by some of the people I was bringing into the business, you know, who were coming in through quite, they were coming from high profile scale ups and they were kind of like, you know, this is how it had done. You know, I, I remember getting a lecture once on rituals and thinking, what on earth is this person talking about? But it turned out that rituals was, was a key thing in, in, in building tech teams, right? Yeah. In the early days, I didn't really have any of, uh, any, any of that understanding. But what we did have was a fiercely loyal culture. And what I mean by that was team members were loyal to a fault. You know, often, uh, often I would be quite guilty that they'd stuck with us. And I was thinking, you know, God, you know, you should go off and do something. You know, you're amazing. You should go off and <laughs> fulfill your career, right? I mean, let me, let me give a real example, um, uh, who I'm sure won't mind me saying this. So, so one of our early employees was, um, or colleagues was, um, Bailey Kersar, who latterly went on to, um, uh, um, do really well at Market Invoice. After that, Monzo, she was one of the very early people at Monzo involved in the community building, which of course was critical to them, uh, and is currently actually, um, uh, building her own fintech, um, successfully called Tukan, or who branded, rebranded to Tuco, I read on LinkedIn yesterday. But the key point is, I remember her actually, um, putting me into the office when it was time for her to move on. Uh, and I said to her, look, I agree it's time for you to move on. I just hope you're not going to a job that's beneath you because, you, you know, frankly, you can do amazing things, right? Um, so we had a fierce loyalty in the early stages because everybody understood what they were signing up for, right? Everyone I bought in, I basically would say to them, look, I'm going to be honest with you, right? You know, we have enough money to get through to Christmas, for example. Um, now, I think we're probably going to raise more money, but I can't say that with absolute certainty. So if you're not comfortable with the facts, right, if you can't mentally think, well, okay, I'll think about this as a contract role till Christmas, and you, you, I know you want to join a startup, but you probably shouldn't join a startup. You know, you're probably in love with the idea of a startup, not the reality. So everybody came in, you know, we were very honest and transparent with each other, and there was kind of fierce loyalty in the company. Um, and that was our great strength. And I remember giving a, a, a team speech about halfway through the journey or towards the end of the journey. Uh, and I basically said, um, I said, look, you know, there are startups out there that have raised hundreds of millions of pounds, you know, they're unicorns, blah, 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 blah. You know, but we often, we often outcompete them. Yeah. So a classic example is somehow we managed to end up top of Google. Uh, against, you know, players like, uh, you know, Funding Circle that literally were spending, as far as we could tell, millions of pounds on SEO and somehow we beat them um, uh, by, by reading a couple of blogs. And so, and I used to say, you know, we like Scrappy-Doo. You remember they had Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo as a little nephew, yeah? And we were Scrappy-Doo, yeah? Uh, and, and we were fierce and we were loyal. Uh, and, and actually, we punched above our weight, yeah? Uh, and, and, that, and that was kind of our early stage company culture. Um, if I did it again, I would do that again, yeah? Yeah, you know, I would do the same things. I accidentally got that right. You know, in would the you, early would you, stage, would you, um, would you, if you did it again, um, and it'd probably be more likely that you could now. I think, would you raise much more money early on? Yes. Yeah. We 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 didn't have the option in the early days of raising lots of money. Um, I'm not, you know, whether we would have done the right things with the money, I don't know. I mean, I know tons of um, fintechs that, frankly, um, are, have far more profile and, and, and uh, cred than they really should do, given what they've actually achieved in revenue, for example. Um, whether we would have done the right things, but would I have? Yes. The, the, the worst thing about the funding cycle is you kind of have a six-month honeymoon after you raise money where you can actually focus on the things that matter in the business. And then you kind of have a six month, you kind of have a six month period where you're, you know, bear in mind, let's say your average revenue is 18 months. You then get to the middle of your runway of 18 months. 
and um, uh, you're beginning to half think about you know um, when the runway runs out. The final six months, it can actually be a really dysfunctional time. Yeah, in that. Um, you know, you can kind of be thinking, well, we need to think about metrics that might impress investors, you know, yeah. rather than actually working on the hard stuff that's really going to, you know, really going to bring the business out of its shell and make it into what it could be. And very often, actually, the stuff that matters in the business will lead to a couple of bad courses. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, we, you know, the couple of times we actually took tough decisions, inevitably, there was a bad quarter. Um, but if you've got money in the bank, that doesn't matter because you know what you're doing is the right thing to do. So, um, yeah, if I, you know, if I could raise more money, I would raise more money within reason for the simple reason that the best things that happen in the business are the ones when you're focused on what's important, not what impresses external investors. Yeah. So, so one option to be focused on, um, you still keep the exact same culture and attitude of um, being scrappy, as you say, because, you know, that's, that promoted the right type of intellectual behavior. Um, the right type of loyalty in the team and the way that a startup, in your view, should should behave culturally. But um, it would have allowed that runway of um, just purely looking at how the business could um, increase the metrics that you desired. True. So the other way would also be if um, the business could have generated um, sustainable revenue or profit. That just wasn't an option. Um, well, actually, I mean, funding options for most of its lifetime was a pretty lean business yeah. in, in the context of the times we were in, right? So, you know, there are there are many fintechs in London, yeah, um, that have uh, um, similar or lower revenues than funding options. Uh, and in terms of their life-to-date investments um, uh, are multiples higher, in some cases, 10, 20 times higher. So we were always a relatively lean business for the times that we were in, right? So, you know, you know. Of course, the world may be completely different post-COVID, post-WeWork, you know, um, yeah. uh, um, the world may be different. But for those times, we were relatively lean. Uh, you know, um, I, I guess you could imply it from our financial statement, so I can say it, right? I mean, we were probably burning a million pounds a year um, for, you know, a few, year, you know, a few years in a row. I don't know how many, but the critical point was our revenues went from negligible to meaningful in that time. But the key point is, you know, we weren't, you know, tanking enormous amounts of money with no obvious return out the other end. So, could could we could we have been covered our cash flow being profitable? Probably yes, but the inevitable trade off would have been that we would have ended up with a, with a business that was conventional and not exciting. So, in other words, you know, not, not not a business that was worthy of venture capital because you know the whole point of venture capital, correctly, is that, is that your job is to go and try and knock it out of the park. Yeah. Um, take a big market, you know, let's let's talk about Uber, for example, um, you know, taxis and, and, and getting around cities is an enormous market globally, yeah? Um, uh, and they're trying to knock it out of the park in that market, you know, completely turn it on its head and go and take an enormous share of that enormous global market. You know, that, that's kind of their job, right? Um, you know, and, and there, was a, there could have been a different trajectory for Uber, you know, where they raised, you know, half a million dollars of seed capital and they became the biggest taxi firm in, in, in San Francisco, right? You know, and they could have been profitable, right? Could be a great business. But that, you know, th- there's an amazing article by a venture capitalist talking about um, what venture capital businesses need to be. And it basically says, if you look at the, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but all trees start from small seeds, yeah? 
but the DNA of a redwood tree is fundamentally different. You know, it's still a small seed, but if it's packaged within its DNA is a very, very different trajectory, right? Yeah. It's going to go fast and it's going to grow much bigger than anyone else in the forest. And that's kind of the point, right? If you take VC money, if you take investment money, your job is to try and build the redwood, right? You might start from the same small seed, but that is the trajectory that you're committing to do. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not, you know, if that's not where you want to go, it is brilliant to bootstrap a business. It's brilliant to build a profitable business. Um, but that's not why you raise equity investment. And therefore, um, I, I really like that example. Thanks for that. Um, you chose to do that because you wanted to do something on a big scale with this market opportunity you saw. So we've reflected and perhaps there could have been co-founders. Uh, perhaps you could have raised more if the times were different. Um, I mean, I completely acknowledge what you're saying. Uh, a lot of other fintechs uh, have burnt a lot more money. So funding options did really well um, and still has an opportunity to to solve a big problem, right? Uh, as you say, and I completely um, agree for what it's worth, that um, you know the ability to have small businesses that come in many different shapes and sizes needs to be brokered much better. Um, I was um, I was talking in series one with um, David Keane, who is now the CMO um, with funding options. And his background is is many things, but um, certainly he, he spent some time at Google, and um, he was looking at the um, funding options opportunity. And one of the things that he thought was exciting was if funding options used the technology that it had, that it had created to be able to broker SME lending to actually be more broadly spread across different sectors. I think he was looking at it from the same type of perspective that um, you know anybody who wants to go really big does and just think about what do we got? What's the really big opportunity here? And uh, yeah, he, he, he was talking that through. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that um, particular episode or if you know that, 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 um, that kind of... Um, it reminds me of a number of uh, discussions yeah when, when I was still there right I mean you know that 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 kind of question is exactly the kind of question that leadership teams end up discussing a lot at startups right um, and actually you know it, 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 interestingly one of the, one of the insights that I discovered in my in my tenure as CEO and it's perhaps more of a, a you know it's perhaps even more important for people who end up being chairs or, or well, not execs but certainly chairs is effectively, it's possible actually for a leadership team to spend way too much time discussing those things because, um, you know, you you begin to um, you, you begin to see, you know, there's there's lots of little pockets of opportunity in everything. You know, what have you got? You've got a brand. You've got a technology capability. There's lots of pockets of opportunity, and actually, the the trick I always found was effectively. You know, you can have those discussions where you really, you know, take off the handcuffs and just, you know, discuss every single po possible combination of where you might go as a business. You can have those once a quarter, maybe, but probably ideally once every six months. And you've got to be hyper-disciplined in shutting those down when they happen outside of the window. Because in the end, you know, um, too much opportunity, too many things you could do is an absolute killer of a business. And it's one of the mistakes that I made repeatedly in the early years, right? The you know the the analogy I would give it's it's kind of like the First World War right the 
you know, they, they ended up with this stalemate where effectively they had literally hundreds of miles of, 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 of trenches and, 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 and fortified areas up against each other. But occasionally they would actually find a hole in the defences they'd managed to punch through. And really it all came down to whether you, when you found the hole in the defences, whether you could marshal everything and punch through the hole. You didn't keep looking for holes in the wall, you punched through. Uh, and kind of the, you know, the, the genesis of the success of funding options was we kind of found a hole in the wall and we got laser focused, probably to a fault, actually. You know, we, 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 um, we actually, you know, our hole in the wall actually turned out to be something that wasn't particularly technical, wasn't particularly sexy. Um, uh, but it was, it was a genuine, you know, we, 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 we got real revenue traction. We got real unit economics and we just doubled down and we doubled down again and we doubled down again. Um, uh, and at the same time, we kind of cracked lead acquisition at the same time. So um, those conversations are fantastic conversations to have, um, but you should probably only be having them every six months. Most importantly, you need to be ruthless on people who want, you know, ruth- ruthless on team members who want to talk about them at every meeting. So, um, that's, so by the way, it's not a comment on David, by the way. Uh, but but my, 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 my point is um, op- opportunity in startup land is a curse as well as, uh, as, as, well as a strength. Uh, yeah, because... We- uh, there's we, so many things you can do, but you, you have limited resources. The whole point is you're small. Yeah, we get, um, and we're definitely smaller than funding options. Um, we get that challenge of opportunity presented the whole time because to be a boutique search business, um, you can impress a client by delivering them, let's say, a senior strategic individual. And um, then you get presented with um, another opportunity. Okay, well, perhaps you could help us with our marketing function because you guys have done a good job. And um, very early on in headhunters' careers, you know, they put their hand up and, and say, "Absolutely, <laughs> right? This looks like obvious revenue." Um, and what you've got to learn over time is is to not do that because then you dilute what you're focusing on. You become a generalist, which for us is is, is the um, is the absolute reverse of what we need to do to keep on pushing through that hole that we found. As you, um, as you rightly say, so it's some incredibly uh, poignant advice. Um, Conrad, I want to understand, um, you, you hinted on it at the beginning, but perhaps we could go into a little more detail. I do have you on the show. It's a long format, and I don't know if you've, you've kind of put articles out. I couldn't find any, but you've really gone into the detail of why you stepped down as CEO, how you talk about funding options, just to, just to kind of prep into the question. Um, it's still full of passion. It's still full of belief that um, you know it's a concern that's done incredible things and will carry on doing that. Uh, and I notice you're still active on social, supporting the business. I know you have equity in the business, but nonetheless, um, what actually happened then? Why did you make that decision? It must have been such an incredibly emotionally hard thing to do. Yeah, well, well, let's let's first talk about that. So um, I, I was with a successful startup founder. Um, uh, I won't name them, but you know, unicorn level startup founder. And they said to me, um, "I can't imagine what it's like to have your baby taken away from you." Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, which was their summary of of leaving funding options. And I said, "You know what? I understand where you're coming from, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like putting the kids in boarding school." Yeah, and let me just explain that because I, I, you know, just sometimes you come up with the phrase where you just absolutely nail it, and that was one of them. Yeah, because it's still there. Yeah, you know, I can have what well, before COVID, I could have lunch with my ex colleagues if I wanted to. You know, pop by, um, uh, I can have a chat, right? Um, so, in other words, you know, I haven't lost that from my life. 
what I actually lost was the hard bits. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, make no mistake, it is incredibly hard to run a tech startup. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the, it's the nervous energy is what gets you in the end, right? You know, the fact, the fact that the, the constant sense of crisis, because, you know, an effective CEO in a startup focuses most of the time on the latest crisis, right? Uh, and it's very, very, you know, it's only occasionally you actually come up for air and suddenly realize that actually 90% of it seems to be actually going swimmingly yeah, because your laser focus on the 10% is not, right? So, so, um, uh, so emotionally, it wasn't hard at all, honestly. Um, uh, there was a, you know, a bit of a sense of relief, obviously a bit of sense of, you know, um, uh, you know, is, 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 is this right? Um, but fundamentally, no, I've actually really enjoyed my downtime. Uh, and, and I don't feel I've had something massive taken out of my life. It's still there. Yeah. Um, that's a genuine observation. Um, and in terms of, uh, um, why, uh, which is, uh, a, yeah, obviously an important question. It was the right time. You know, uh, I, I think it felt like, I'd taken a business um, uh, um, as far as I was going to take the business. It felt like there was probably need for some fresh thinking. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you kind of like, you know, just, you know, problems just felt intractable. And, um, you know, there were still residual things that we hadn't quite figured out. And I kind of, I was kind of out of ideas. Um, and on, on the other side is the fact that, you know, I'd, uh, well, um, not I, uh, we had hired an amazing leadership team. Uh, uh, um, over the last year or so, we bought in a new chair. Uh, so in other words, you know, if there was ever an opportunity where I was going to leave a business without, you know, acute harm to the business, because, you know, it is a big deal for the sole founder to leave a business, it was probably then. So, so really, I kind of felt that I wasn't sure that I was the right person to continue running the business. Not because I wasn't capable of running a business at that scale or at that stage, but more because, you know, in the end, you know, if there weren't any more ideas coming from me. Uh, and actually, sometimes I was feeling like I was being schooled a bit by the leadership team I brought on board. You know, the whole point of a scale-up leadership team is you bring in functional experts who know their function, whether it's marketing or, uh, or, or sales or whatever it may be. They know that, you know, they are world-class specialists. Uh, and actually, in the end, I was kind of like feeling that I was learning from them rather than actually teaching them. So, so, so those are the reasons. And actually, you know, running a startup like that for more than five years, you just get really tired. And I needed some time off. You know, I joked at yeah. the start about, you know, um, recovering my sanity, but there's an element of that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, people don't talk enough about mental health in, in, in founders, right? But, you know, it really is tough, right? Uh, and there are times where you just want to crawl into a fetal bull, right? But you can't do that, right? Because if you've crawled into a fetal bull, you know, you're not going to go onto that investor call, which might, <laughs> which might actually define whether the business survives the next week, right? You know, you literally, you know, half, uh, half the battle, it's a bit like Rocky, right? You know, the reason Rocky, the boxer, always wins is because no matter how many times you get to punch to get to back up again. Uh, and, and, and if that, you know, floats your boat, then start a business. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, uh, thanks for explaining that. Um, when you say it like that, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I still think it must be such a hard thing to do. Um, what um, do you do with the business now? So as part of that move away from being the CEO, um, do you still get to um, meet at boards and uh, add strategic um, strategic opinion to the business or have you stepped away in any capacity? I've, I've stepped away. Um, look, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, 
I might occasionally get asked a, a question about X or Y, and it might be some something as specific as, you know, where is this document that suddenly become dramatically important? Uh, or it may be, you know, um, what's your advice? But I have stepped away. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, the, the um, you know, to the extent that happens, very occasional um, uh, and never initiated by me because I think it's extraordinarily important not to try and be, you know, not, you know, the people that take over you, they need the same free hand that you had, right? You know, the, the reality is, I remember when, uh, when Margaret Thatcher resigned as prime minister, she famously said she was going to be an amazing backseat driver. Yeah. So in other words, her vision was that she'd basically be still pulling the strings in the background, right? You know, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the chief executive needs to be, uh, be a chief executive. Uh, and that goes all the way to, um, you know, the board basically needs to only, you know, only tell the chief executive what to do when they really fundamentally disagree. And it needs to be a very rare thing indeed. Because fundamentally, you know, chief executive needs to make decisions and they need to live or die by those decisions. And you get to a world where um, uh, decisions are forced on chief executive, and when things go wrong, where's the accountability? Yeah. yeah. So, so long story short, no, I'm not involved, uh, and, and I shouldn't be, by the way. But, 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 Conrad, can, um, I'm just thinking of numerous other instances. Let's take um, we're in June 2020 for context uh, to the audience. Um, let's take Monzo. Um, we've had um, Tom Blumfeld. Um, step away from the CEO role, big news, um, and taken a role of, um, I think, president or chairman. Um, and um, I have a new CEO coming in. Um, you know, so his explanation, I haven't interviewed him, um, but uh, his explanation from, from, from what I uh, have read is that... Um, in a fintech business at the type of scale that Monzo had got to, he was spending 90% plus of his time focused on getting them through regulatory challenges. And uh, that's not what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do um, was spend his time trying to get uh, keep the business true to the product vision that he'd always had. And I think whether that's, um, whether that's correct or not, you never know what's happened. But, but that certainly makes some type of sense. Um, so I just, for one final push, you've been very kind explaining, just, it feels like a slight shame because funding options, um, you know, as the unicorn, uh, friend CEO told you was, was your baby. And then the analogy of sending, uh, the child to boarding school is, is really good. But as long as you're not in anything on the C-suite or down or interjecting, then surely you still probably, uh, somebody who has the um has the vision the strongest and you can still add value and it's just about getting the balance right where people know that that's just you as one one voice on the board it's not you know you coming back autocratically there's there's just and maybe it was because at that point like you say the wellness of you know having to deal with the challenges for so long of a of a startup um you wanted to step away but um, it, just for me, it always feels like a shame when the, the founder doesn't still have some input. Because if you actually don't look in the short term, like a six month, one year um, basis, and you look over the next five or 10 years of a business, typically when the founder still is involved on the board, I think that that business is much better off for it. It seems like a shame. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's... Um... 
and, and I can I can I can see the basis of 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 that point, right? But um, not for me. Um, you know, I no. <laughs> you know, the reality is, you know, I am free to go and do another thing if I if I want to do so. Uh, and the business is free of, or the leadership team and uh, are free of me. So they, you know, they they can make decisions. You know, if anyone wants my opinion and wants to ask my advice, it's always freely given, right? Yeah. So you know that 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 that, that is a given, right? You know, it, it, you know, funny options, as you say, is my baby, right? Uh, but, but fundamentally, no, I like the fact that I'm free to go and do something else. Um, I may well do something else in the second half of the year, by the way. Um, so. Um, yeah, that, that 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 just I can I can see why there are strong arguments for it. Yep. You know, in, the, in the case of Monzo, of course, you know um, Tom is talismanic, right? Um, so it kind of has to be that way. You know, it's not Monzo without him. I think um, so. I, I think it's not quite the same. You know, funny options, funny options without me. With um, with what you've learned, would it make sense that the next um, venture if you are to proceed and found um you look at it with all the lessons learned as what you're really incredible at doing and particularly now that you'd you'd be um second time founding because you've got the network you know how to raise capital uh you know you know to add three times on to whatever the forecasts are um would you do the same would you look to chase a business to about 100 staff um and set up that management team earlier? Because is that the bit you enjoy? Do you like from nothing creating? Do you think it's that element of the, the art of the business you enjoy? And then actually when it got to, this is starting to feel like, you know, a strategic C-suite, this thing has got a bit more late stage, then that's not for you. And, and, and if so, that's great. Reid Hoffman does the same thing. He, he takes businesses from, um, I think literally zero to about 20 people where he's, He'll put himself as MD or CEO. He just sets the team up straight away because he's he's a philosopher. He likes to just think of the game theory that he's setting up. And this could this could be the same for you too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. So I think that particular nuance probably not quite um, because uh, you know I, I was happy in, in an organisation with that many people, um, uh, and I've you know in, in the COO role we we previously talked about. Um, you know, I think there was. Like fifty or so people, of which you know most of them reported to me uh, as well. So I'm actually it's not so much about scale of business; it's more about actually um, what your natural strengths are. So you know one one of the one of the great learnings I sort of took along the way is that you know I, I do love that big picture thing, right? And I do love making things, right? You know, make no mistake about that. You got you you absolutely nailed that, right? You know, to a fault. Uh, I, I I love talking about. Um, the next shiny thing, you know, um, the, the strategic vision, the bigger picture. I love that stuff, yeah? Um, but the reality is, right, um, uh, that, that can only get you so far, yeah? Um, you, you need a completer finisher. You need a detailed person. Uh, and you also need a team lead person as well, a sales person or a team lead person who can basically motivate the team on a daily basis. You know, I, I think I'm super good, at, by the way, at motivating the team on a quarterly basis. Um, but you know, if I come in, you know, if I come in half, you know, half half the week grumpy uh, and, and you know barely legible uh, until I've had a, three or four coffees, right? I'm not the person to give the morning team talk, right? Mm-hmm. So, so essentially, the you know the big lesson for me on that point is effectively, um, you know, I would be looking to assemble 
that sort of mix of not just expertise but but types you know and the ex you know the execution person the motivator person i would assemble them assemble them as quickly as possible uh, and it may well be that i take you know take those functions around me as you know however far i need to go it may well be that one of those people naturally it should take my job really quickly i don't i think i'm more neutral on that the critical point is effectively you've got to understand what you're strong at and what you're weak at uh, and you've got to hire um uh, you've got to hire for those weaknesses and, and there's an amazing book i mean the far and away the best business book i've ever read uh is called the hard thing about hard things um by uh, um one of the part, one of the founders anderson harowitz the, the vc firm and and in there is so many amazing pieces of insight i mean fundamentally what he's saying is most business books are written about the very rare scenario where a business is doing you know amazingly well you know businesses like from good to great right when actually most people running a business are facing a battle you know largely for survival and he's written a book for that right and for a startup founder that's what matters and one one of the observations he makes is that when you're hiring if you if you as a founder or chief executive let hiring be a team activity then you'll tend to hire he said you'll hire for lack of weakness so in other words a candidate that's extraordinarily good at the skill that you need them for um but is rough around the edges is weak in some areas will get knocked out by committee based hiring and what he says is you must hire for strength not lack of weakness so in other words you know if you're in enterprise sales you need a world class enterprise sales person and it doesn't matter if that they have some weaknesses and they rub people up the wrong way if it's not their functional area it kind of doesn't matter you must have someone world class in the area yeah uh, and i think you know that that's that's kind of a, a key takeaway for me something i learned the hard way but fundamentally it's less about the stage of the business it's more about i need to surround surround with people who do stuff that i'm not so naturally strong at i completely agree with you um and and horowitz and uh that's the message we're trying to get out at mana is we kind of collide into fintech at say series a and at that point the first time that the founders thinking about you know seriously bringing a team on and um they'll just start running maths and they'll be like ah oh, well you know we've got one recruiter in house we put some adverts onto linkedin um you know i can find people it's all right we got 50 applications for this role and i'm like i mean honestly it doesn't have to be my agency but you need this to be a full time engine going out there to get the best people on the market and it doesn't really happen when a company just directly goes out to someone because the psychology is completely different than when a broker is talking about somebody's drivers and then you understand how to match that driver with a unique opportunity they've probably never heard of or never come up against and so that's what we're really excited about i'm constantly you know my long vision is looking at talent as talent capital um so you know i started to make investments based on just purely well who's the founding team who's backing this are they actually going to really bring in the best you know analytical people are those analytical people actually capable of machine learning and if they are think okay, if this thing looks like this could do quite well and actually those fundamentals are pretty good to be able to work out the trajectory of how successful a business is going to be and um you know when you look at a business as you say that just came out the tracks and just popped because it had a load of good pr it got a load of money you you start going underneath the surface and looking at well, who have they actually hired yeah sure the recruiters think they are hiring people but are they hiring the best people and what's 
one of the interesting things to look at right now in COVID, amongst all the very unfortunate things, this is one of them, is just an absolute hemorrhage of companies that went the wrong way about hiring people, A, and then B, the same thing with, um, with you know, people right now kind of jumping out of fintech because I think they joined it because it was this shiny proposition and it looked like there was guaranteed success. And actually what, um, you know, is happening right now is the true fundamentals of businesses are being tested. And I think one of the pillars in the business, of, of a few pillars in businesses, is how strong is their talent and how well cultured is their team. And it's something that I think we're going to see over this next 10 years, um, hopefully put Marna Search into a stronger position. Because um, if you don't get that right, and all the VCs know this, then actually there's not much left to the business typically. So it's a message we're trying to get out. And that's one of the reasons that we're, um, we're doing this podcast. And I don't talk about it much, but um, certainly the point, you, um, the point you hinted on there, uh, I, felt that it was, um, I felt that it was appropriate. So thanks for letting me air that. Um, Comrade, just, just finally, um, I would love to get, because you're not tied to a business beyond, um, like you're not in the CEO's role. So typically when I have CEOs, on the show, um, you know they have a they have a corporate duty sometimes to tow lines. Um, I'd like to hear some of your perspective and views on um, on the position of fintech right now, midst COVID, potential recession coming. As somebody who obviously understands um, the market incredibly well, yeah, um, that's a very good question. So I think I think we're at we were already coming to the end of the first wave of fintech, okay? Uh, and I think this has nothing to do with COVID. It was already happening, which is that a lot of money had flooded into building up direct-to-consumer or sometimes direct-to-small business, um, uh, you know, sort of brand fintech startups. Uh, and, you know, in, in a very WeWorky fashion, kind of like, you know, there's kind of blitz scaling, doesn't matter about your unit economics, doesn't matter about your cost of economic, uh, cost of acquisition, you know, just go get customers, go get big. And then, and, and, and then, you know, the financial rationale will follow afterwards. I think we were already coming to the end of, of that phase anyway. Um, but I think what COVID does is it brings it to a very blunt and bloody end. Okay. Um, and I think the, the so the end of that first wave of you know fintech it's you know we're, we're going to see you know a, a relatively small number of major players emerging strong at the other end, but we're going to see an absolute clear out of of lots of smaller players, and I think that clear out would have happened anyway, but it would have been sort of you know it would have been you know natural incremental deaths rather than you know um, uh, the sort of uh, you know the short sharp shock that we're probably going to see. So uh, now, now the reason the reason for that ending coming, disregarding uh, COVID, was simply because it was becoming increasingly clear that you know um, you know you can spend a lot of money acquiring lots of customers, but making money from those customers is hard. Yeah, um, and uh, you know you the, the classic example, of course, is you've got some of the digital challenger banks, not all of them, uh, end up being the world's most expensive PFM tools. And what I mean by that is. Consumers use them because they've got cool budgeting, and they, they you know, they show you the pre lot, you know, they, they tell you how much money you're wasting at Pret a Manger. But in reality, they're just using it for that sort of dashboard layer. 
their actual bank where their real money is still remains Barclays, right? Um, uh, and guess what, right? You, you can offer a PFM tool a lot cheaper without a bank license. So, so there are, you know, I, I think we, we, we're going to see a small number of serious contenders coming out at the other end. And in that respect, you know, I'm old enough to remember the first dot-com boom, yeah? Uh, and some of the stuff that was being getting, attracting sort of billion-dollar valuations was just insanely crap, right? You know, it makes, makes the, current, you know, the current world look uh, very, very sane, just to be clear. But that generation, that bloodbath that followed the end of the first dot-com boom, out of that bloodbath, we had Amazon, we had eBay, we had PayPal. So in other words, some amazing companies came out, yeah? Um, but a lot of them went in and a small number came out, but they were truly amazing companies. You know, Amazon is, is without doubt now the greatest company in the world. So, um, so I think we, we'll see an accelerated end of the first wave of fintech. The second wave of fintech is, um, uh, for me, is kind of a platform layer. So in other words, it's the, um, it's the hidden, not direct-to-consumer um, enabling layer um, that will enable um, truly sustainable fintech. Um, so it's Plaid is, is probably the exemplar there. So Plaid, for those that don't know, is kind of American-style open banking. Uh, they're currently being acquired by Visa. But effectively, something like 25% of all U.S. households have used Plaid. Yeah, they might not have heard of Plaid because they're using it through branded fintech apps. But it's uh, it's those enabling layers. Um, uh, you've got some really good examples here in the UK. I don't want to name them; it'd be unfair to name them and not their competitors. But effectively, there's an enabling layer um, uh, either of payment services, of data services. Um, as as we started off with, I've joined the advisory board of a lending as a service. So kind of that platform layer. layer. I think that's where we're going. So to give a real example that kind of brings it to life, um, payments, for anyone who's actually tried to get their, their heads around payments, you can work in payments for 50 years and still not quite understand payments. It's so complicated. And it's complicated because it's been built up over years of different technologies, different jurisdictions, and all kinds of stuff. Nobody really understands payments. But fundamentally, we've now got new players coming in that are basically building. They're building the, the, doing the hard work of plugging into all the shitty stuff in the background excuse my French, uh, and you can basically integrate at a top level to a single API and get it all done for you. So it's those enabling layers. Um, uh, so fintech as a service, I think, is, 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 the, is the wave we're moving into. The wave that comes after that, I think, is less clear. Uh, and, and it's two. Uh, I, I'm going I'm to make two calls here. They're not mutually exclusive. So there is the possibility that wave three is decentralized finance. So in other words, that you know, blockchain finally comes of age. Yep. It is possible that decentralized finance, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Um, you know, to use a last industrial revolution example, aluminium was discovered as a brilliant way of making aeroplanes. Um, uh, and, you know, for 10 years, it was used in the most advanced fighter planes. And now it's used in every single plane that flies. But it, it takes decades for these transformational technologies to actually take off sometimes. So one potential one is decentralized finance, that blockchain actually becomes a real thing rather than something that innovation labs do. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a blockchain cynic, but I can kind of see it. Um, but the one, I, the, one I, the one I really buy uh, in terms of what the next wave, the, the, the sort of future fintech wave, there's an amazing um, blog post by a partner at Anderson Horowitz. I'm giving them lots of free PR. And they said, they're seeking a Google Maps for finance. 
okay? Uh, and I cannot do this justice, but I'll try and do it justice. What they basically say is, you, with Google Maps, you just tell Google Maps where you want to go, okay? And it finds the most appropriate route for you. If something happens along the way, it reroutes you. Google Maps is the best technology it's ever built. You don't even need to tell Google Maps where you are now, yeah? It knows where you are now. It just takes you where, where, where you need to go. Why can't finance be like that? Yeah. Why can't you just say to finance, I want to retire at 50, and then it just takes over? Yeah. And if something happens along the way, it reroutes you. Yeah. You don't need to tell a Google Maps for finance where you are now. You literally just give it your credentials. It strips out your data, reads your open banking, boom, and then it starts you on the direction. I think that's where finance ends up. But I've seen nobody, um, nobody really building that yet. Um, uh, and um, maybe maybe that's what I need to do next. What are you um, What are you going to call that, comrade? <laughs> uh, well, I've, I've I've got one or two ideas I'm playing with, but uh, I, I, won't, I won't go into them now. Um, but uh, um, I, I I love the vision. You know, just sometimes yeah. you know sometimes you just read something, you just think, I wish I was clever as that person. Um, uh, I wish I could quote their name because I, I feel a bit bad. I don't even know their name. But yeah, it's. Um, I think if you if you search for Google Maps for money or Google Maps for finance, you'll find it. And, and I strongly recommend it. A one minute read, you'll come out of it thinking, "Oh my god, that's the future." I'll get the um, I'll get a link off you, and we'll um, we'll post it on the uh, on the show notes, and I'll certainly have a read myself. And I am um, I'm going to very much help you. Uh, with the talent that you bring to the Google Maps for finance when you get around to that later in the year. Um, Comrade, thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. What, um, what a fascinating journey. And uh, we will all watch this space. Brilliant. It's been really nice uh, and uh, look forward to speaking again in the future. Cheers, Comrade. Thank you. Bye. Please do visit us at marnasearch.co.uk. At Marna, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms. We are connected with the best talent within fintech. We conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the Marna of the best teams. Please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market. All that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support. Take care, stay safe, and see you very soon on Searching for Mana with Lloyd Warhead.